Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore corporate human rights abuses, the misuse of corporate power, and efforts to seek accountability, transparency, and redress for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to fighting for and defending the rights of others, talking about what they are working on, how and why they have chose to pursue this fight against corporate injustice. Hello, people. So today I am sitting with Seema and I'm looking forward to this conversation with Merlin Crosser. Merlin, she's a director of CORE, which means putting people at and the planet at the core of business. Now, uh, Merlin was appointed as CORE's director in March 2012 and is responsible for strategy, operations and fundraising. So let's welcome Marlin uh, Seema, please. Marilyn, it's so great to have you with us today. Uh, what an honor. Um, so tell us, what are you working on at the moment with CORE? Thank you, Seema. Thanks for the invitation to take part in the podcast. So at the moment with CORE, we are working on a campaign with around 25 partner organizations. Um, most of them are NGOs. One of them is the UK's biggest trade union, Unison. And the campaign is on um, a corporate duty to prevent human rights abuses and environmental damage. So it's really inspired by the campaigning that's going on across Europe for mandatory due diligence requirements. So for people who aren't familiar with the terminology, what that means is requiring companies to take steps to prevent human rights abuses from happening and to address them if they do occur. Um, so what we're doing is is similar to that. We're looking for the same thing, but we've framed it in UK terms. So in the UK, we have the Bribery Act, which creates a criminal offence of failure to prevent bribery. Um, and something like that was recommended for human rights abuses by the Joint Committee for Human Rights when they did an inquiry on business and human rights a few years ago. So we've taken the idea and we've built a campaign around it. And we launched that uh, last year. It was when a big court judgment came out from the Supreme Court in the Vedanta case. And we used that as a moment to say, well, it's fantastic to have this judgment that's expanded the way that parent companies can be held liable, potentially. But there needs to be real legal clarity for, for companies, for victims. And you know, we feel the way to achieve that is through legal reform. So that's what we're doing at the moment. I mean, it sounds great. I mean, when I, uh, I mean, having also worked uh, with you in the past and also been pushing for the stronger legal agenda, uh, and you know, trying to fill this gap, the void, right? Because because currently, you know, when companies do commit human rights abuses, particularly let's say UK companies outside the UK, there is this legal gap. You know, I, I know John Ruggie called it the governance gap, but it's a legal gap. 
Um, I mean, can you say a little bit more about, I mean, the Vedanta case? It'd be really interesting to to hear, you know, why why do you think that uh, once we have this, you know, if we have this law in the UK, what what will it mean in terms of the impact? You know, what how could it improve the situation? You know, for for people that are affected by corporate harm. Sure. Yeah. So it is a legal gap. Absolutely. Um, At the minute, if I run a multinational company, what happens in my operations and what happens in my supply chains, in terms of the running of the business, that's my problem. I've got to get it right. Obviously, I've got to make money. I've got to run a profitable company, deliver the returns to the shareholders. That's a legal duty. Um, What's not a legal duty is for me to do anything to address abusive practices that are happening either in my own corporate group or in the supply chains. Um, So that is obviously an enormous um, gaping hole in terms of um, corporate behaviour, corporate practice. Obviously, I have to comply with local laws where wherever I'm running the company. But as we know, often um, enforcement of those laws isn't particularly strong, either because resources aren't in place or because there's corruption or sometimes simply because in certain countries there is a real um almost desperation to attract investment and governments and regulatory authorities don't want to take on companies they don't want to drive them to go and relocate in another jurisdiction so that means that there are very serious abuses happening um, in in the supply chains and and in the corporate groups of UK companies and you know I, we can go into some examples I'm sure people might be familiar with some of them anyway so what we want to try and do is say as a UK company or as a UK based company you cannot just wash your hands of these issues you have a legal responsibility to take some kind of action to to do something and if you don't do that you could be held liable so at the moment there are there are some companies who are making some efforts perhaps in particular areas they've identified risks and they're trying to do something to address that maybe working with other companies in the sector but that's very much a minority um the majority of companies are do- really doing very little often nothing what we want to do is say y- you have this legal responsibility um as i said um i mentioned the vedanta case so that was a case brought by a group of people some zambian communities who are affected by pollution from a copper mine that's operated by a Vedanta subsidiary. Vedanta is a giant mining company. It's headquartered in the UK. And the argument in that case is in the UK, the people running the company call the shots in Zambia. They can't say, well, well, that might have been happening in Zambia, but I knew nothing about it and it isn't my problem. It absolutely is your problem. And because the profit tends to flow back out of the country to the, comp- to the, to the country where the company is headquartered, we say that's where the firm should be held accountable. So the idea is that 
the the type of measure that we're talking about would would have two effects. It would have a preventative effect. If you've got to identify where your risks are to human rights, you have to take action to do something about it and ideally prevent the problems happening in the first place. But where that doesn't happen, if you cannot show that you um, had robust systems in place that were adequate to deal with the problems, you could potentially be held liable. And at the moment, that's extremely difficult to do for, for various different reasons. There's another case going on against Shell that will go to the Supreme Court in June. The reason it's going to the Supreme Court is because Shell have said, we knew nothing about what was going on in Nigeria, not our problem. It was all Shell Nigeria. They took that to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal, a majority, not all of them, but a majority of the um, the justices agreed with them. So, um, you know, that's that's a huge, these are very much live issues and, you know, they're, they're going on globally. I mean, it's so great that the coalition is taking this on because it's absolutely crazy that, you know, when you have these multinationals that are able to operate across state borders, make profits in countries like Nigeria and Tanzania and, you know, India, Pakistan, that then they have no accountability for the failure to act responsibly, right? And the failure to really responsibly take the measures necessary to protect human rights and the environment. Uh, it's so great to see that this work is going on. Um, can I ask, you had mentioned that, you know, using this, uh, the bribery framework, uh, and that's pretty interesting because of course the UK Bribery Act also has this failure to prevent provision within it, right? Um, which, uh, you know, which is interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, if there's like an agent or I don't know, a supplier or someone in the someone in the middle, you know, this sort of hidden middle, you know, if they fail to also take the measures necessary to stop the bribery, then, you know, the multinational could be held accountable. Um, I mean, do you do you feel that, um, of course, we have all these standards, human rights standards, right, for companies, of course, the UN guiding principles, which talks about corporate conduct and corporate responsibility. And I mean, they have almost been approved now by the UN Human Rights Council for almost 10 years. But, you know, I dare say they haven't really led to maybe enough change in corporate practice to companies acting responsibly enough or even let's just say multinationals. So with the UK Bribery Act, I mean, I mean, do you think that if we use that model of law, um, that then it provides an extra push, you know, that's been missing, you know, for a while and actually getting UK companies in this instance to be held to account for global operations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think the guiding principles were were a big step forward. Definitely, it was they were significant, and the endorsement of those by the Human Rights Council was a highly significant moment. Certainly, in driving the conversation forward. Obviously, now the gap is between words and action. That's where we've seen you know a big space opening up. Policies, policies, and policies. Practice. Lots of national <laughs> action plans on business and human rights. You know, lots yeah. of time put into developing them. Is it really translating into a into a big difference? Well, I think we would probably say you know, over the last decade, people are pretty disappointed with with how little mm -hmm. change there's been. 
Um, I think in that respect, legal reform does certainly offer an avenue. Um, and, you know, we've talked about the Bribery Act. Certainly, um, anecdotally, you know, we hear that companies do put much more robust practices in place because, because of that law. We also know that um, the government has looked at the effect of what in this country is called the senior managers regime. So that came about after a number of massive financial misconduct scandals. And essentially what it does is it creates individual liability for certain people at senior level in the financial sector. Now, that's Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, very um, harsh. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not... Uh, it's not an easy, um, you know, it's not a light touch measure, but it was done because what had happened before was so serious and there was such a lack of accountability that it was felt really this was the only way to change things. And um, we know it's had an effect because the government has told us. So at the moment, government is consulting on um addressing online harms so that's that's about the harms to people who use um say social media platforms etc in that document they talk about potential senior management liability in that context and they say which for us is absolute gold dust they say the senior managers regime has had a transformative effect now that's individual Mm. liability you know for um natural persons Mm -hmm. with the human rights due diligence stuff we're not really talking about that at this stage but it could form an element Mm -hmm. of the package so what we're interested in is the company's policies Mm -hmm. the company's practices obviously that is driven by individuals one model might be to factor in an element of individual Mm -hmm. responsibility how that exactly would be constructed would would need very careful thought you know you would need to think did someone know should they have known and if they did how should they have acted but it's certainly something that we see growing interest in Mm. and now of course we have as well as the bribery offense we have the failure to prevent tax evasion Mm -hmm. that's new that's new on the books too so you can see there a a direction of travel yeah it's great it's great it would be great to see this um actually come into fruition so marilyn um Great work. Uh, A question I have is, I mean, you've started working as a community development officer in in Glasgow. And I'm curious, you, I mean, the podcast is the rights of others. And it seems like you have a history of, you know, working for others. I mean, but moving from being a community development officer in Glasgow to basically directing this coalition of organizations tackling corporate accountability, which is a big feat. I mean, what brought you here? How did you come here? How did I come? (laughs) What inspired you to end? where you are now okay so yeah I worked um I worked as a community development worker when I left uni so I worked in really tiny organizations in Glasgow um with people um 
the first one was with people who were disabled um, and, you know, it was uh, kind of how, how they wanted to organise themselves and what we could do to support them. The second one was on, um, it's around health issues. So it's very different type of work. And I went from there to work for Oxfam and I worked on, I worked for Oxfam in Scotland and it was in 2005, which was back I'm really showing my age now it was back when it, it, uh, it comes out for it all of comes us up for all of us yeah it was back when the UK hosted um the G8 summit um up at Glen Eagles in Scotland so it was a brilliant brilliant time to be involved and make poverty history was this enormous enormous campaign right across the country under the labor government and it focused on aid, trade and debt. Those were the three asks. So the aid ask was about the 0.7 commitment to giving international development assistance, which is now enshrined in law. So that was an outcome of that campaign. The debt ask was about debt cancellation. And there was debt cancellation as a, as a result of the work. And the trade ask, well, that was for fair trade, which was, you know, obviously a significant level of ambition. Um, and I think that was the one where, you know, people felt uh, most disappointed about the outcome of the campaign. And it's interesting now seeing trade back on the agenda here as we start to think about new trade deals once we leave the European Union. But it was a really fantastic campaign to work on. And, you know, there was a link to the community stuff because with a colleague, we did a tour of Scotland. You know, we did a road show and very, very different to the type of work I do now. But people all across the country were really excited about this, you know, and it was a, a moment where you thought people really felt they could make a difference. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes now it feels like sometimes we can't. And that looking back to that campaign is a good reminder that we can. And then from there, I moved to Oxford to work for Oxfam GB. And I worked on the Control Arms campaign, which is exactly what it says on the tin. It was a campaign to control the trade in conventional weaponry. Wow. So what they were doing, what we were doing, was trying to get a treaty to control control the arms trade, because at the time there were no consistent controls. So there were controls, there was a patchwork of controls. So there was a reasonably good regime in the EU, but it didn't cover everything. In other places, it was very patchy. So we used to say... Um, there are tougher controls on the trade in stamps and on the trade in dinosaur bones than the, than there are on the trade in AK-47s. It's crazy <laughs> and probably not far off. Probably right. not far Even off, today. no. And it was a brilliant, brilliant campaign that we, we did in partnership with Amnesty International and with a small coalition of organisations called IANSA. And... When the campaign started, there were three countries that backed the treaty, Cambodia, Mali and Costa Rica. So there weren't, you know, not exactly big hitters on the international stage, but they got that they got themselves down there. And I think no one really expected this campaign to achieve what it did. 
But the the outcome was that a treaty was agreed and is now being implemented. And to be a part of that was a fantastic experience, really unforgettable experience, because um, as a part of it, we had an online petition, a photo petition called The Million Faces. Now, this for younger listeners was before smartphones where you could just send a photo like it was nothing. Uh. I mean, this thing was a hand knitted website. It was really, really clunky. And in lots of places, people hadn't been able to access cameras. So they'd just drawn their picture and then they'd sent this in. And thousands of people, so you know, huge numbers of people in Brazil, which is a country really badly affected by armed violence, huge numbers of people in West Africa, again, you know, region that's really affected. And just to see that and see people going out there, often with really limited resources and mobilising people at a market or some community gathering, it was so, so inspiring. So that that was a that was a great yeah, a really, really great experience as a campaigner. I actually am not really aware of what actually the mechanism of the problem was and how it was affecting everyone. Could you explain it a little bit more about these this arms dealing problem? Yeah, so in some regions, it was about um, where arms had fueled an ongoing uh, conflict, so either within a country, so a civil conflict, or between between countries. So, for instance, that was the issue in northern Uganda. It was an issue in um, a particular region in Senegal, and it was a it was a real issue in Liberia, where the ability to access weaponry and ammunition had kept a conflict going. In Brazil, it was a different type of problem. It was, um, you know, just a, just huge numbers of weapons circulating. And I mean, this treaty, which is, you know, I mean, it's in force now and it's been implemented. It's not, these things aren't a magic solution. It's a, it's a tool, you know, it's a tool for people to use. It's a tool for governments. It's a tool for activists. It's a tool for lawyers. Um, we've seen that recently actually here when um, the government was challenged over arms sales to Saudi Arabia on the grounds that they were being, the weaponry being sold was being used to, to, attack on attacks on civilians in Yemen and there was a court challenge and as part of that challenge they cited the arms trade treaty so that's what those sorts of international instruments can do you know people often look at international law and say well what is it for you know countries just seem to ignore it and just do do what they like or people will say well China didn't sign it or Russia didn't sign it but that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact it, it really does so that was that that side of life and then I, I left that work and I moved to London and I worked for a refugee charity again which was doing advocacy and campaigning work um, I mean there's a thread because you know one of the main reasons that people flee from their home country is conflict. That's one of the big drivers of um, migration flows. You, you can see that now we're seeing it on um, 
in Greece, with people coming from Syria, not just from Syria, but also from Afghanistan, from Iraq. Um, so I so I worked for them. Um, and then um, I left there and I was looking for something new. And uh, I'd been aware, of course, slightly. And I saw the job, um, very small organisation that was looking to be built up. And I thought, well, that looks, you know, that looks interesting. And again, it's again, the link is there because really, you know, the arms trade is about controlling. It's about controlling a trade. It's about controlling an economic activity. This is the same type of work, except applied to, you know, just about every type of commerce that you can think of. Um, and so uh, that's that's what I went to do. Um, and eight years later, here we are. So that's uh, that's it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, such an interesting journey. And, you know, I love how you're so inspired. I mean, it's inspiring to hear the different projects you've been involved with and issues you've taken on. And then and then you're so positive. You know, there is a lot of positivity <laughs> coming from Marilyn. And, and I yes. and I and I can pick up, you know, I should learn a few things because I think I can be a little bit less positive. Uh, on occasion. Um, I mean, a question that I have been asked, and I'm sure you've been asked it too, is that if you were, um, you know, speaking to like someone who is, you know, 15 years old right now, or 16 years old, and trying to figure out, you know, is is listening to this podcast, and was saying, I want to be like Marilyn. I mean, what, I mean, what is what was what's the advice you would give? Or what is the one define what you feel is the one defining moment you had where you thought, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to take on because this agenda is a difficult agenda. I mean, refugees also extreme. All human rights issues are very challenging. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a person who's worked in this space also for a very long time, it's these these corporate actors, these multinationals are so powerful. And even if you feel you've taken one step forward, even if we get that law, that regulation, it seems that there's another gap, you know, that companies that want to act irresponsibly, which are not all companies, seem to find that way to still move forward if they can make a profit. So what what's the advice you would give to that 15 year old today, not to when you were 15, because the world has changed so much. Yep. And then maybe what's the moment that you can remember that really sent you off in this direction? Um, in terms of advice, I would say, you know, follow your passion as much as you can, because that will keep you going when it's difficult. Um, you know, I know that for for young people now, things are much tougher than when I was that age. I mean, just for instance, for me, the university was free. You know, massive, massive difference. We weren't coming out with a lot of debt and, you know, there wasn't that immediate pressure. Um, but I would I would really say, you know, think about what it is that you're passionate about and, and go for it. Um, try not to worry um, because you will get there eventually. Um, I think for particularly for people listening here in the UK, you know, I know it doesn't feel like a great moment now nationally, but what I would remind you is that you are the future and the future is there for you to shape. So don't give up. Don't, you know, don't be beaten down. Um, I've been incredibly inspired by the school strikes. I think it's fantastic yeah. movement. Um, and I think it just shows you that, you know, 
even when things seem really bleak, something comes along every time. You know, people are so ingenious and so creative and so tenacious. And I think look out for those things. Look out for those things that keep you going. Um, look after yourself and take breaks and know when to stop and, you know, have downtime that's good quality downtime. And I think maybe, you know, think of think a step or so ahead. So think, well, okay, maybe the first job that I get is not going to be exactly what I want it to be. But be open. Think about what I can, what can you take from it? You know, who can you meet? Who can you talk to? And what might the next, what might the next step be for you? And how, how do you kind of see yourself getting there? So that, that I think is something that's helped me. Um, Was there a particular moment I wish I could say that there was because then it would be like a really great moment for this podcast but <laughs> I think, I think we, that, we, we've all been pushed to think a, of a moment, a moment. And, you, and a moment is coming to you right yeah. now <laughs> um I I grew up um in you know really different really different milieu from the one that I'm in now um but with uh a, a father who was, I think, you know, wouldn't have called himself an environmentalist, but he kind of was really. And that was that was formative for me in terms of thinking about um, the way things are and, you know, what needs to be protected. And and I grew up with a mum who was, is incredibly, incredibly hardworking and a real enthusiast. And I think, you know, not is not an activist, but in another era, absolutely, definitely would have been. And even now at 73, we'll say, is, a, is a news junkie and we'll say things like, I'm so inspired by what's going on in Hong Kong. I think those people are so incredibly brave. So, you know, for me, although, you know, my family is not an activist family, not a political family, they were in their hearts. I think they probably were. So there was that as a as a kind of moment. And if was there a moment? I mean, as well, you know, with with my stuff on on the conflict stuff on the on the on the arms trade stuff, I you know I grew up in a time when there was a lot of there was a lot of conflicts on the TV. You know I grew up in a time watching the conflict in Northern Ireland, watching the conflict in Lebanon, watching the Iran Iraq War. I mean you know there were it was a there were there was a lot of um, armed violence around the world, and I remember even being very young thinking, you know, I really don't feel enough has been done to try and stop this. So I, that took me in that direction. Um, on the corporate accountability stuff, um, yeah, I saw the job and it was interesting to me. It was not a field that I was especially familiar with. And I guess that goes back to the point I made before about being open to, to doing things. You know, you don't know what you'll find in the box until you've had a look into it. So, you know, don't be too rigid in in what you think you want to do. Um, the guiding principles, hadn't heard of them. Ruggy, who's he? No idea. <laughs> Parent company legal accountability, what? You know, so I had a bit of a, OK, this is this is interesting. But I mean, certainly, you know, you could see again that around that when I was a bit younger, 
It was the era of no logo. It was the era of some of those early campaigns, you know, on labor rights when people really started drawing attention to what was going on um, in the factories that produce the products that we all buy. And I think the more I've done the work, the more I've kind of, you know, really, really seen people lifting the lid on that. And I think you know, now it's it's one of the defining issues of the moment because the, the way that we consume, the way that we have come to expect products to be available is, uh, is driving not just a human rights crisis, but it's become clear that it's also driving an ecological crisis. And I think, you know, even in business now, you can see people not very um, enthusiastically, but at least beginning to say, okay, something has to change here because we can't go on like that. Um, so that's what's kept me going in the, the, the time yeah. that I've been doing the job. Yeah. And that really, I think, lends itself to to where I was, you know, going next. I mean, what I mean, the change, it's the impact, right? I mean, we, you know, the, the the people who work on, let's say, strict corporate accountability issues for human rights and environmental abuses, it's, I mean, it is a small group of people. And I think, I mean, part of the challenge, as I see it, is that we need to inspire, you know, people who are, you know, outside of our kind of this elite area of work, if you want to say, to become human rights activists, you know, around these issues. It's, it's as you said, it's the people who are working for the multinationals, you know, or it's the people in the companies or or it's other, dare I say, middle aged people, <laughs> you know, anyone over 40 who's listening or that's a bit young, perhaps, but 45 you know, listening to this podcast, and I've, you know, I have many friends who are in this demographic who basically somehow have become disengaged from thinking that, that you have a role to play in becoming a human rights activist to get more accountability in relation to these types of issues, whether it's abuses in supply chains or climate change, um, you know, arms, as you were saying, or something that's more more local, you know, issues on, you know, even picking strawberries, you know, in, in the UK, um, so, so what is, I mean, what, you know, in my view, it's like, how do we get that impact? You know, you know, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? You know, how can we engage, uh, you know, meet power with power? What is a way that we can build this base of power, more human rights activists? Like, what can people take away from this? Like, what can they do uh, yeah. to become part of this agenda? Right. Okay. So, um, a couple of years ago, we were doing some work with parliamentarians and we were phoning MPs offices and we phoned someone and um, the person said, oh, well, it was a researcher. And he said, well, the thing is, he likes to, um, you know, he likes he likes to, you know, take take from the issues that are affecting people locally. And I was like, well, you know, it's about um, it's about labor rights abuses in the DRC. And he was like, well, I don't think that's something that people in the town are that concerned about. And I said, well, people in the town have mobile phones, don't they? You know, that's where these minerals are ending up and they should be concerned about it. And I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed, absolutely, you know, because it's everywhere. And I think it's pushed back onto us and we're told, 
you can affect things through your choices as a consumer. Well, hang on a minute, I'm the consumer. And I've say got to put a meal on the table for my family. So I go into whichever supermarket. Well, hang on a minute, do I really go into the supermarket? Well, okay, I'll go into it because I'm in a hurry, whatever. Do I buy the organic or do I buy the British products or do, do I put it in a plastic bag? Well, that's wrapped in plastic already. So I think in a sense that model, that mindset that's been foisted onto us, which is you're the consumer, the power is in your hands and you can choose. It's a bit false because really, you know, yeah, around the edges, you can make some decisions and, you know, of course, of course you can. But really, these are structural problems that cannot be addressed through purely through consumption choices. So what I would say is um, link with other people. You know, there are people who are concerned about this, whether it's through a big organisation, you know, like Amnesty, like another big campaigning NGO, or it might be through something that's, that's at more local level where you're putting together a different type of model. Um, contact your MP. MPs are obsessed with what their constituents have to say to them. They really are. Um, it's worth talking to them if there's something that you read and you're concerned about. It's it's absolutely worth getting in touch. That helps us because if people hear from constituents when they hear from us in the other direction, um, it, it has more of an impact. If you work in a business, talk to other people in your firm. There are people in business who are interested in these issues. Often they need to know that other people are interested as well because it can be quite isolating. And I think, you know, don't don't give up. That's maybe the main message I would give to people because it can feel overwhelming. Absolutely. Um, but there are kind of there are chinks of light. Definitely. Um, and I think look out for those inspiring stories. I mean, some of the things that I found most inspiring in this work is where people, you know, often one person alone has kept something going, has kept the pressure on, you know, sometimes for years. I mean, the case recently, it was someone who had managed to win compensation for himself and for a group of his fellow workers at um, a Heineken factory in the DRC and and it, it had taken him like 10 to 15 years but he was so determined that this company was not going to get off the hook that he kept going and we don't in general you know we we're not in we're not in that position you know we're not we're not risking everything we're not putting everything on the line but you can keep informed about that, you know, and you can take small actions to really, you know, be a part of the same movement. And I think, you know, really take inspiration from people who are out there fighting the fight. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Like, I really want to thank you for 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 just doing it, because, 
you definitely have uh, taken some of the um, pressure which I was feeling recently because I was interacting with a lot of activists, let's say in human rights, textile, and you are 100% correct that a lot of young people I was interacting, working with, especially the students who I was working with, uh, have this this false se- well th- yes you're right that the the industry have convinced or market has convinced that oh yeah you you have the power you can just make a choice and everything would be fine and that actually uh, also impact on our human evolution because we are not built to feel guilt for the whole mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. we are built to feel guilt for our tribe but now as you're saying we go we we uh, see all these big uh, abstract entities which you uh, Seema call like this governance gap which they have created uh, and and that guilt is now then put over into this abstract huge world level situation and they all feel overwhelmed so someone like you who has faced such adversity maybe come along and shows us the way that look no this is how we can create change and what you are feeling, the kind of powerlessness and overwhelm, is because that's the message which I've been giving to you is not how the problem would be solved. And so don't just keep adding more to what I sometimes call, it's called like a personal responsibility vortex. It just doesn't doesn't affect. So I truly feel that uh, it is, it's beautiful what, what you have just told me personally. So at least... Yeah, I'm. I feel more empowered to to yeah. Good, good. Yeah. Well, and but I think as well. I mean that actually, I being I do think things have moved in this space a lot. You know, so I think the fact even that we're talking about an actual law in the UK that would be as robust as this mm-hmm. one is the result of a law being created in France. Yeah. and the result of all these other um, discussions in European countries. Yeah. And then as well, um, you know, I've worked on an area called corporate crimes for a very long time. Like, I think the first case I specifically tried to push was in 2006. And I think, you know, the hill then was that we weren't seeing any cases actually really being taken up, you know, whether it was criminally or not very many, even on the civil side. Whereas even when we started the podcast, we have Vedanta now in the UK. Shell is pending in the courts. In Canada, we have the decision of the Canadian Supreme Court allowing mm-hmm. Nevsin, you know, the claimants in Eritrea to bring the case in Canada against Nevsin. And this, I don't think would have happened even 10 years ago. So I think that um, you're right. It's the we need better laws, but I think all that work to lead to the laws are coming. I think companies need to be called out, and I think you know we're getting better at calling them out and getting through the libel check and the defamation, and which is often why we never say company names on this mm-hmm. podcast uh, for listeners who are wondering why we're not more specific sometimes. Um, you know, but I also think I mean my last. Uh, building on this <laughs> excuse me as is when you know when people come together you know I mean Harvey Weinstein was it 23 years he got mm-hmm. you know for mm-hmm. all those sexual crimes and that's not something that would have happened you know even a few years ago I mean that is I think connected to a movement so not maybe one person here and there but this, what you said it's this I- idea of if we can effectively organize you know mobilize mm-hmm. and use our collective power 
to maybe pushing for particular changes, I think that there are maybe opportunities in this space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the law in France was the result of a campaign, yep. you know, as the laws in other places that are coming down the track will be. It's not purely a specialist issue. You know, it is something that's absolutely connected with wider society. The same with the work that we did here on the Modern Slavery Act. You know, that was the result of engagement by the public, by journalists, politicians, people in business, you know, and these changes are incremental. But as you say, it's a drip drip effect. And yeah, you do see a shift now, definitely. I mean, 10 years ago, business and human rights, that phrase, it didn't really exist even, you know, so you can see, yeah, yeah, progress. So, so I guess, Marilyn, uh, as Raza said, thank you so much. And final question. I mean, what, what, what's next? What's next for you? That's a really big question, a really difficult question. Uh, well, to say uh, it's been my pleasure. Um, maybe a career in podcasting. You know, I quite, I quite like this. I <laughs> oh, could, yes. I could, yes. I could build Come this in. I could, I could build this into something, I think. Um, I uh yeah so I'm 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 about to move on from core after after 8 years. Um I I'm going to take a little bit of time out and I will probably I think spend some of that time with my wannabe activist mum um yeah. up in the north of England. Excellent. And then after that I'd certainly hope to remain involved with the corporate accountability movement. Um, you know, there are all sorts of interesting projects going on. So, yeah, so l- let's let's see. But I guess I just want to finish by saying um, I've I've really loved this job and it's been a fantastic eight years and it's been a huge privilege for me to work with people like Seema, with the activists around the world that we're in touch with. Um, as I said, you know, massive source of inspiration and just to have been a tiny part of that has been really great. So, you know, to anyone listening and thinking about a career in in human rights or in this area specifically, I would absolutely say, you know, go for it because it's uh, just fascinating work and you can you can make a difference, definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye, people. Thank you.